Wonderful to be here this morning. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Steve uh, with my wife Tammy. We have the pleasure of uh, helping to lead this growing family of churches that we call Central Vineyard. We're going to continue a teaching series that's been going on for the last couple of weeks. And uh, I want to start by just making a, a little bit of an assertion. And that is we all have a theology of God. All of us, regardless of how long we may have called ourselves Christians, uh, followers of Jesus, whatever label uh, you want to give, all of us have a vision of who God is. And here's the thing. You might be right, but you could be wrong. Do you know that? You might be right about your, what you think or who you think God is, but you could equally be wrong. And uh, a key way of answering that question, determining that fact, is, is to really think about where do you get your theology of God from? The thoughts that you have about God, where do they come from? Do they come from, I don't know, a religious upbringing? Do they come from a, the culture at large, the, the messages that are, are given to us? Um, do they come from superstition? You know, things that we've picked up uh, throughout the years, things hearsay, things about that say, oh, God is like this. Or is our theology of God rooted in the scriptures? I guess that's the journey that we've been on in this whole teaching series over the past few weeks. We've, we've been coming back to a passage of scripture in Exodus 34. If you've got your Bible, you might want to turn there. Exodus 34. And... If you like, this passage of scripture is like God's self-disclosure statement. It's kind of like ground zero for God. It's, it's kind of like God saying, you know what, if you want to know what I'm like, then start here. And so that's what we've been doing over the last uh, few weeks. So let's read that again. Exodus 34, verses 6, 6 and 7. It says, and he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And so we've been going through this passage each week, line by line. First of all, we looked at the Lord, Yahweh, Helohim. We, we looked at what God is like. Last week, if you were around, we looked at this idea of compassionate and gracious. And so this week, we're going to look at slow to anger. Slow to anger. Slow to anger is taken actually... From the Hebrew, uh, some of you may know that, you know, when, the, when it comes to translating the scriptures, it doesn't always get translated word for word into English. It just, language doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Uh, the, the Hebrew word is ek apayim. Can you say that? Ek apayim. Can you say that? Ek apayim. And uh, that literally means uh, long of nostrils. Uh, long of nostrils. It's an interesting fact, isn't it, that uh, God has a big nose. Uh, but actually, um, I think this idea of 
being slow to anger, coming from this root word, ekapiam, which is to be long of nostrils, illustrates really well what it means for God to be slow to anger. Think about it for a moment. If you get angry, you probably don't, but if you was to get angry or someone you know uh, gets angry, what do they do? Their, their nostrils flare, don't they? And they breathe through their nostrils like, <laughs> you know, and there's that, that, that reality. I've got a little bit of video just to illustrate this, just to um, amuse you. Right. Please insert the key. Yes, yes, I am inserting it. Thank you. Please insert the key. I have inserted it, you Britain. Incorrect starting procedure. Right, this is your last warning. I'll count to three. One, two... Sorry, I didn't get that. Right, that's it. Don't say I didn't warn you. I've had it up to here with you. I'm going to give you a damn good threshing. And I'm going to teach you a lesson. Nasty little... Dusty bonnet there. Oh, look! So, there are those of us who are quick-tempered, uh, a little bit like Basil Fawlty. Um, we, we show that by flaring our nostrils and the way we breathe and express that kind of anger. But on the flip side of that, there are also those who are slow to anger. And people who are slow to anger, think about this for a moment, they stop, they close their mouths, they, they take a deep breath, and they're slow to anger. And the scriptures tell us that is what God is like. You know, the reality is, is we can make God mad, but we really have to work hard at it, because God is slow to anger. He's, he's slow to anger, meaning he's not quick-tempered. He's not volatile. He's not waiting to flip out because he's so angry. He's not like, um, he's not like, he's not like that at all. He's, he, in fact, when, the, when they translated the Hebrew scriptures to the Greek, the word they used for this uh, long of nostrils was patient. He's patient. Older translations of the Bible say he's forbearing, the forbearance of, of God. In one of the Targums, which is basically the Old Testament translated into Aramaic, and so when the Jewish people were in exile, uh, they forgot their language, and, and they spoke the language of the day, Aramaic, and so the scribes began to translate the scriptures into Aramaic, and what they did was they added like an, an addendum to the scriptures, a bit like... Um, What's that Bible called? The Amplified Bible. Anybody come across the Amplified Bible? It's like you read it and it takes about three weeks longer to read it because they've added all these descriptive words. And, and the Targum was a little bit like that. And so the Targum takes this passage, Exodus 34 and verse 6. It says, O Lord, O Lord, gracious and merciful God, patient, long of nostrils, the one who is um, forbearing, and it says this, it says, uh, the one who makes anger distant and brings compassion near. 
Isn't that wonderful? That wonderful picture of God that, that actually his compassion is close to us. That, you know, and it's interesting to know that actually the, those that heard Jesus speak, that was the version of the scriptures that they probably would have been reading. The Targum, the, the Aramaic scriptures. And uh, it tells us that God is slow to anger. He's patient, that he has compassion, uh, that his compassion is near. It's, it's in our hands. It's near to us. His compassion is close, but his anger is far from us. It's on the horizon. It's, it's, it's far away. That's what God is like. That Hebrew word for, uh, for slow to anger appears in some different places in the scriptures. Uh, first would be Proverbs 14, 29. Whoever is patient has great understanding, but one who is quick-tempered displays folly. The transverse of slow to anger is quick-tempered. That you have a temper, that you're quick to respond with anger. Proverbs 16, 32. Better a patient person than a warrior. One with self-control than one who takes a city. Right here, the, the descriptive word, the synonym of this is, is that a person who's slow to anger, a person who's patient, is a person with self-control. And so this is what God is like. He's, he's slow to anger. He's patient. He's forbearing. He's not hot-headed. He's not ready and waiting to zap us, but he has self-control. He's slow to anger. But the, re- the truth is, he's also slow to anger. He's slow to anger. God, that means God does get mad. Would you agree? That he, 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 does, he does get mad. And we can't ignore that. We can't ignore that. The scriptures talks about the wrath of God more than 600 times. That the scriptures mention uh, the, the anger, the wrath of God. Here's a couple of examples. Psalm 7:11. God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. How often does God get angry? Every day. Every day. But why? Well, in the context of this psalm, is that it says God gets angry every day because of injustice because of injustice that God is a judge a just judge and anger is a fitting response to injustice it's a fitting response to the things that are wrong in our world or then the psalm 11:5 the lord examines the righteous but the wicked those who love violence he hates with a passion God hates. I was thinking, hold on a minute, isn't God meant to be love? But God, God hates. He hates the wicked. And you know, this isn't just an Old Testament thing, okay? Um, how about John chapter 3? John chapter 3, 316, we all love it, don't we? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But we don't quote verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on them. 
The thing we need to realize is that God's anger is very different to our anger, isn't it? God's anger is different. Our anger is rooted in impatience, self-interest. But God's anger, on the other end, is slow to anger. He's slow to anger. Our anger is often unjust. Our anger is disproportionate to the offense that's been taken. And yet God's anger is rooted in justice, that it's proportional to the offense. That's why the scriptures tell us, doesn't it, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Because, you know, if someone knocks our tooth out, we want to knock two of theirs out, don't we? You know, if someone gives us a black eye, we're going to give them two black eyes. But that isn't how God works. And ultimately, our anger is rooted in ego. How dare they do that to me? Do they know how important I am? It's rooted in ego. God's anger is rooted in the heart of a father. God's anger is rooted in the heart of a father, a father who may get mad at his child, who's about to do something totally destructive. John Stott, the uh, Anglican theologian, he, he defines God's anger like this. He says, his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all forms and manifestations. That's what we mean when we talk about a God who has anger. And there's no doubt that he gets angry. But it's not the starting point, is it? God's starting point is compassion and graciousness. And because of his compassion and graciousness, he is slow to anger. Now, the temptation in our cultural moment is to form an image of God that never gets angry. You know, that's, that's the temptation in this, in this kind of cultural climate that we find ourselves in. Is let's just make God more palatable. Let's just make it more clear to people that God isn't angry. Never mind slow to anger. He's never angry. Uh, the, you know, the idea of God, God being angry, it's just an Old Testament thing. You know, it's just we see it in the Old Testament. God, God was a little bit different then. It's just fundamentalism. It's just, just kind of repressiveness of Christians to think that God is angry. And, and the temptation is to form an image of God that's rooted actually in a bigger cultural uh, thing that's taking place. And, and that is this, this idea that our culture insists on redefining what love is, doesn't it? Our culture insists on redefining what love looks like. And it's a love that's rooted in tolerance. That's what our culture does. Our culture it redefines love and says it's all about tolerance. But the truth is, love and tolerance, in my opinion, aren't the same thing. They're not the same thing. Now, there are some different understandings of what tolerance is, aren't there? Certainly. You know, one understanding of tolerance could be that we can agree to disagree. Yeah, we can agree to disagree. And we can do that on all kinds of things. You might vote one way, I might vote the other. You know, you could be wrong, but I could be right. But we're not going to kill each other over it, okay? We're not going to get angry with each other necessarily. We will tolerate one another. 
And I think that form of tolerance is probably quite healthy in a community like this one where there's mixed opinions and, and, and there's things that we kind of see differently and view differently. I think that's a healthy form of tolerance. But tolerance at its worst would say that, and really, and I think this is the tolerance that our prevailing culture tries to promote, is that there's no right, there's no wrong, and who are you to judge anyway? That's kind of what our culture says, is it, when it comes to tolerance. There's no right, there's no wrong, and who are you to judge? And so if, if our culture's way of defining what tolerance, if that's how our culture defines tolerance, then in my opinion, love and tolerance are two separate things. That as we look to the scriptures to find the truth uh, of what, what love actually looks like, it isn't what our, our culture says is uh, tolerance. One Nobel Peace Prize winner said, opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. And at some point, tolerance starts, I think, to slide dangerously towards apathy. Love, at least the, the kind of love that Jesus talks about, includes anger, doesn't it? It, it, does, get, it does get angry. We get angry about the things that we care deeply about. Things that we are passionate about. This is the kind of anger we see in God. Anger that is patient, just, unselfish, that comes out of a place of love. Anger that comes from a father who cares for his children. You know, we've all been there, haven't we? If those of us have got children, our kids, they step out in the road, you shout, no! And you grab their hand. You know, and there's this anger that erupts in you, but it's an anger of a loving parent, a loving father. And so despite our tendency to rebrand God to fit our culture, if we're going to take the scriptures seriously, then we have to take the idea of God being angry seriously as well. You see, God's anger is born out of his love. In this passage in Exodus that we're coming back to week after week, God is slow to anger. It's bookend by two other things, isn't it? It's bookend by compassionate and gracious and abounding in love and faithfulness. That each end of that spectrum, it's because of his compassion, because of his graciousness, um, uh, because of the fact that he's abounding in love, that he can be slow to anger. Often our desire is to reimagine God as this kind of progressive being and this idea of love and tolerance being based on what Jesus had to say. I heard one slightly more progressive Christian say recently, the message of Jesus was, was all-inclusive love. On the surface, that sounds it's quite nice, doesn't it? The message of Jesus was all-inclusive love. But is that really the Jesus we encounter? You know, if we, if we thumb through the scriptures and study the scriptures diligently, 
is the Jesus we truly encounter, this Jesus that was all-inclusive love. As I say, it's, you say it as a soundbite and you're like, yes, amen. In Mark's gospel, it sums up Jesus' message like this. The kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe. The kingdom of God is near to you. You know, central to Jesus' message was the kingdom of God. This long-awaited time of peace where, where God as king would enter into humanity, heal humanity. And that was being broken through, through Jesus. Jesus is arriving. He's saying the kingdom is about to be here. Jesus makes clear in those moments, I'm king. I'm king over everything now, and humanity is going to be brought back into this glorious new age of my kingdom. And so we enter into that. And the, and the truth is, it's in that that Jesus, that, you know, what Jesus expresses in that is love. But it's not love based on the terms that we, we build. You know, Jesus expresses his love through the ushering of his kingdom. But guess what he then does? He, he proceeds to talk about the judgment of God. You know, do you know Jesus teaches more about judgment in the New Testament than any of the other New Testament teachers? It's one of his major themes. He's constantly warning Israel, calling them back to repentance in light of the fact that he's announced his kingdom has come. His kingdom has arrived. He's calling people back. One story in particular that does a profound job at capturing this reality is when Jesus goes to the temple in Jerusalem. You know, for first century Jews, uh, the temple was the meeting point, the place of connection, the place where people met God. But in Jesus' time, the priests uh, of the temple had become like the aristocracy uh, of the day. They were in bed with the Romans. They, they'd become corrupt. The spiritual leaders of Jesus' time had become totally corrupt. And one of the things that would happen is, is that people would come to the temple and, you know, as many of you will understand, there was like a sacrificial system that people had to bring a sacrifice to the temple, maybe a lamb. And maybe they would walk three or four days with this lamb from their home to the temple. Uh, and they brought the lamb, and it was one of the best because the law required the sacrificial lamb to be the, the best without defect. But as they arrived, the priest would inspect the lamb, and he would say, oh, I'm sorry, but this lamb doesn't meet the standards. It doesn't meet the standards required. But don't worry, I happen to have one for sale that's already been approved by the priests. And you can buy it if you like, and I'm going to charge you whatever I like. It's a bit like buying a packet of crisps from a service station. You know, they've got a captive audience, so they charge you like three quid. Or let's say, let's say you arrived at the temple and you traveled even further. You didn't want to carry a lamb on your shoulder all the way to the temple because you've been traveling for weeks. And so instead, you brought money uh, to buy your sacrifice. And as you get there, the money changer says, well, I'm sorry, but 
We don't accept Roman coins in the temple. We only accept temple currency. But guess what? We're the only bank who offers an exchange. And we can do that at any rate that we please. And so what does the all-inclusive loving Jesus do when this happens? Well, he gets mad. He gets really mad. In John's account, he tells us that he makes a whip. He makes a whip and he starts chasing the money changers out of the temple, turning over tables, dumping their money and their animals on the ground, screaming at the religious establishment, get these out of here. Get them out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. John ends this account and he says the disciples remembered that zeal for the Lord's house would consume him. Is this how we picture the all-loving, inclusive Jesus? Whip in hand, fire in his eyes, knocking over tables, screaming at the top of his voice as the money changers duck for cover. You know, um, I, I, I grew up in church in the 80s and we had flannel graph in Sunday school. Anybody know what flannel graph is? You know, it's like this, I don't know, material that they stuck Bible stories to. I never saw this Bible story on flannel graph. Um, you know, this Jesus with like flames coming out of his eyes. I don't know. I don't know. But um, we don't teach this one in Sunday school. It's not the Jesus we like to think about, is it? It's not, it's not comfortable. But it makes sense. It makes sense. He sees injustice and he's angry. Jesus sees the injustice and he's angry. How else is Jesus meant to feel? You see, in this moment, anger is actually the mature and the emotional healthy response that Jesus can make towards a corruption that's taking place in God's name. But here's the interesting thing. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all describe the clearing of the temple as taking place days before Jesus goes to the cross. And some scholars would imply that that is one of the primary reasons that Jesus is arrested and, and executed. You know, you don't upset the religious establishment and get away with it. And the truth is, Jesus, Jesus had been to the temple hundreds of times. It's not like he walked in that day and was suddenly shocked by what was going on. He, you know, he wasn't surprised. Nothing about this story is the spur of the moment. Jesus isn't just being hot-headed and flipping out in the heat of the moment. He's actually thought this out. This is a deliberate act of anger. Jesus is deliberately being angry in this moment. It's a judgment. It's a reckoning. It's a line in the sand moment. After years of calling God's people back to repentance, Jesus says, enough. Enough. It's not going to happen anymore. 
This is a very different Jesus from to what we're used to. A Jesus who is who is loving but still gets angry. He isn't afraid to call judgment. Another example of this in the scriptures, and I think you probably briefly looked at the story of Jonah last week. But you know, 150 years later, anyone know what happened to, to Nineveh? They're completely wiped out. That's what slow to anger looks like, doesn't it? God isn't easily provoked. He gave them another 150 years and then completely wipes them out. That's what Jesus is doing here. He sees what's going on. He says, it's enough. I can't cope with this anymore. And he expresses his anger. You see, we need to live in the tension between love and anger. Most of us think of love and anger as incompatible. How can you love somebody and be angry at them? If that's our default, if that's our default, if that's what we think, I think it shows that we have some things to learn about love, doesn't it? We have some things to learn about what it really means to love. In Jesus, we see a God who is angry, but that's born out of love. It's born out of love. And I want to suggest that if we don't get angry occasionally, then we don't actually fully love. That when we see people we love in pain, it should move us emotionally, shouldn't it? When we see pain in our loved ones, there's something that it provokes in us. It should move us to action, to do something about it. That's why love is an attribute, but wrath isn't. The scriptures say that God is love. Nowhere does it say God is wrath. God is love. Wrath or the anger of God is a response to evil in our world. And this story of Jesus clearing out the corruption in the temple, you know, with a homemade whip, is a foreshadowing of something to come. Because there's a day when Jesus will put evil in the ground forever. When our world will be finally free. And it's because of Jesus' love and because of his anger, his passionate antagonism against evil in all its forms, we can look forward to that future, can't we? When finally Jesus puts it to death, puts it in the ground. So maybe you're here this morning and you need to hear that God is slow to anger. Because your image of God is that he's ready to pounce at any moment. You know, he's ready to swipe me down, zap me for all the stuff I've done. Maybe you wake up and you think, God's so mad at me. You know, I'm so feeble. I'm so annoying. I must frustrate him. He's just waiting to tear me down. Maybe that's how you feel. Or maybe this morning, the thing that you need to hear is that image of God isn't true. That isn't how God's anger works. That's not the God that we're told about in the scriptures. That's not the God who's revealed to us 
through Jesus. The God that we see in the scriptures is slow to anger. Slow to anger. But equally, maybe some of us this morning need to hear that God is slow to anger. That God is slow to anger. Maybe you've abandoned the idea of God being angry. Maybe you let go of that years ago. Maybe you've ended up worshipping at the altar of tolerance. God for you is more like a permissive parent. You know, the kind of parent who's just chilled out, open-minded, lets their child do anything. I remember being like 15 years of age thinking, wish that was my parents. Uh, I wish that was my parents. But that God for, for us uh, could be this kind of laissez-faire kind of God. And because of that, we, we might hold a particular value of love as tolerance. Uh, in, in some way, it gives us, that mentality gives us a free pass to do whatever we want. To ultimately be our own God. I just want to challenge us this morning that God's not a permissive parent. And neither is he an angry jerk. Let me say that again. He's not a permissive parent, and he's not an angry jerk of a dad. He's a good father who's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. I think it was Tozer who said, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And what we think about God will shape the way we relate to him and the way we relate to others. The way we relate to people close to us is probably a good indicator of how we relate to God. If we find ourselves angry, could it be that our view of God is, is shaping our story, is shaping who we are. That as we study in the next few weeks the characteristics of God, what he's like, as his people, as his followers, we're meant to take on his characteristics, aren't we? That, that's, that's the whole point of this. You know, we're, we're, we're exploring what God's like, but actually the end result is we're meant to be like him. We're to take on his characteristics. And so if God is slow to anger, then guess what? We're to be slow to anger, aren't we? You know, in a world that's stressed out and hurried like ours, I think anger is an obvious outcome, isn't it? It's it's something that comes out of us. For me, over this last year, I've just been trying to put in some new habits in my life where I can intentionally slow down and just not feel so hurried and going from one thing to the next. And one of the fruits that I found of living a hurried existence was that I became really quick-tempered. I became a person who was quick-tempered. You know, during the week, we're, we're a family of five, okay, there's four females in my house and one dog who's male. And I don't have a shed, okay? 
uh, or anything like that. But during the week, we are a busy household. There's no doubt about that. Uh, being a family of five, there's every morning there's showers to be had, breakfast to be eaten, lunches to be made, and children to get to school. On a good day, getting to school takes about 10 minutes. On a bad day, we have to go on the A45. It can take three quarters of an hour. Okay, uh, that's the reality of most of our, our mornings. And in the midst of that, we've got three very different children. I'm not going to tell you which one's which in this as I describe them, just for their own, <laughs> their own uh, anonymity. But um, we've got three very distinct children. We've got one who loves to do everything on time. Okay, and if you say to her, be ready at eight o'clock, she'll be ready at five two. Wouldn't you love to have children like that? You know, we've got one. We've got another one who likes to push the boundaries a little bit. So if we say we've got to be ready by 8 o'clock, well, she will stay in bed for as long as she possibly can uh, in order to meet that deadline. Okay, so that's the way she operates. And then our third child, uh, she just gets a little bit distracted. Okay, so you can tell her to do one thing, and she will do three other things on the way to doing that one thing, but forget what that one thing was because she's so distracted. And so this past Thursday, the one who leaves everything to the last minute was still in bed at the time we have to leave the house. But never mind, we've got two cars. So I said to Tammy, I said to Tammy, why don't you take the two that are ready to school. I will wait here and I will take this child <laughs> to, to school. And so we thought, yeah, great idea. Let's do that. Because you know, one of the traits of the one that wants to be on time is that if we are late, that creates a little bit of anxiety for her. So we just thought, let's, let's avoid the anxiety. And you get them to school and I'll wait here. Now, one of the curses of having two cars is that you also have two sets of car keys. And sometimes what happens with my wife is that she will have her car keys in her bag and then she will take my car keys and drive away. Guess what she did on Thursday? And so in the midst of all of this, I'm thinking, oh, my word, what is going on? And I suddenly remembered that if this had happened six months ago, I would have blown my stack. And everybody would have known about it, including the neighbors. I would have blown my stack. And not only that, I would be telling everybody about what Tammy did, like I am today, <laughs> for the whole week. Because I needed to justify the amount of anger that that moment would produce in me. But as I stood there and realized what had happened, I found myself in that moment taking a deep breath. And just thinking, oh well, it's her fault she stayed in bed. Why do I have to be angry about that? It's just one of those things. It's one of those things that happened. We didn't plan for it to happen. And I suddenly realized that actually me making some intentional space in my life to connect with Jesus in some new ways, to be near to him, to be with him, 
was starting to produce something in my life that was different. Now, the truth is, you know, maybe that story came along because God knew what I was talking about this morning. But actually, we've all got weak points, haven't we? We've all got weak points. And it might be for you, it might be anger, but it could be greed, it could be gossip, it could be pornography, it could be worry, it could be reliance on substances. The truth is we all live with a gap, don't we? We all live with a gap, a gap between who we are and who God is. A gap between the way that we live and the way of Jesus. And you see, following Jesus is about closing that gap. It's closing that gap one step at a time. Am I a less angry person? I hope so. Am I going to be angry again in the future? Probably. It happened this morning. Someone cut me up. Uh, (laughs) um, Am I a complete work? No. But actually, if I'm going to take on the characteristics of God... If I'm going to become the kind of person who characterized after the one I'm meant to be following, he's slow to anger. He's slow to anger. How can I begin to do that as well? That as we attempt to walk closer with Jesus, we become the kind of person he is. We become like him. I'm just going to finish by reading this passage from James chapter 1. Verse 19, he says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Shall we stand?